admittedly, coming from a guy that's never done CrossFit, I hear that the hardest thing about CrossFit is to find new ways to tell people that you do CrossFit, <laughs> or to run a marathon, or that you've got five kids at home. My wife and I have five kids at home, by the way. There's another new way to slip in that you've got five kids at home. You preach about it, right? Why do we talk about those things? We talk about those things because we want other people to know that we're about those things. We want other people to know that that's something important to us, that that's something that we do. And so we, it comes up naturally in conversation. Sometimes it comes up unnaturally in conversation. That should be true of us when it comes to Jesus as well. In fact, more so than anything else about us, people should know that we love Jesus and that we follow Jesus and that we want other people to know and love and follow Jesus. In John's gospel, in our section that we're looking at this morning, John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13, we're going to see a man, first off, John the Baptist, but then we're going to see how John the apostle continues to build on that, who was all about making sure that people knew about Jesus. See, Jesus, as we talked about last week, is God's greatest message. He's the word, the logos. He's the greatest self-expression that God has ever revealed. The writer of Hebrews says many times, in many ways, long ago, God spoke through the prophets. But today, now, he has spoken to us through his son. Well, if Jesus is the greatest self-expression of God, and if he has come into the world, then we should want to make sure that we know him and that as many people as possible can come to know him as well. So take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. The apostle continues and he writes this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So right off the bat it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you are with us last week, I mentioned John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, never mentions himself by name throughout the entirety of the gospel. So whenever we read John in the gospel of John, it's a, another John. It's not John the Apostle, but John the, John the Baptist, right. So when we come to this, and, and John the Apostle writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's not the Apostle John, the author of the gospel, but it is John the Baptist. Now, who was John the Baptist? It requires a little bit of digging for us, but back in Luke chapter 1... You may think of Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 about the birth account of Jesus, which is, is true. It is. And the angel shows up to Mary there and tells Mary, hey, you're going to have a, a baby and you're going to name him Jesus and he's going to save the, the world from their sins, right? But there was another birth account that takes place there in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, and that is the birth of John the Baptist, or Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, rather. And in, in Luke chapter 1, the, the angel comes to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and says this about John. Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Think about that for a second. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, Elizabeth. That's phenomenal. Essentially what, what we're reading there is that, that John was saved from the womb. That, that John had a special mission from God, that he was set apart, that he was consecrated from God for a purpose from the womb. He goes on, he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So when John the Apostle says there was a man sent from God, this is what we're talking about. He was set apart by God for a specific purpose. We read about that purpose prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, it says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John chapter 1 verse 23, we're going to read this. John the Baptist is approached by the, a delegation from the Jewish people that say, hey, who are you? And John the Baptist claims Isaiah 43 for himself. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, we have this confirmed. Matthew, the apostle there, says in Matthew 3, verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's purpose that he was set apart for was to prepare the way. Uh, prepare the way for what or for who? To prepare the way for Jesus. To get people ready for the arrival of Jesus. Again, Luke 1.16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And so John the Apostle says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. And he goes on to describe in verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, if you look back up the page at verse 4, speaking of the word, Jesus, the Logos, said this in verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now we read in verse 7 that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. He came to tell people about Jesus, to get people ready for Jesus' arrival. How did John do this? Well, we find out from some other passages in Scripture. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, it says there that John's message was this. Repent, which means to turn from your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, get ready. Stop your sinning. Stop your sinful ways. Stop living for yourself. Turn from that and get ready, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark 1, 4, similarly there, Mark re records that John appeared proclaiming a baptism of repentance, getting people ready for the arrival of Jesus. Luke 3, 3, same thing, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He was there to, to get people ready for Jesus. And then Jesus comes, and in John 1, 29, an amazing statement that we'll get to, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, so what was John there to do? John was there to get ready, people ready for Jesus, to say, hey, Jesus is coming. Get ready. The Savior is coming. Repent from your sins. Prepare yourself. Consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart. Be ready for the arrival of the Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Jesus shows up. John says, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John came as a witness, one who testifies. The word in Greek is mar martyreo, which is where we get our English word martyr. One who bears witness with their entire life. John was there to bear witness with all that he was that Jesus is the expected one, the Messiah. But it wasn't just his goal that they would be ready for him, but that people should believe in him. Notice that in verse 7. He came as a, as a witness, one to, to testify about Jesus, to bear witness about the light, about Jesus, that all might believe through him. That all might believe through him. The word believe is unique and significant in John because it occurs 98 times in the book. 
98 times in the book, and it can mean to trust. It can mean to believe in the sense of accepting something as true. It can mean believe in the sense of entrusting yourself to someone. Here it carries that idea of trust. And this word believe in the original language there, it carries a tense that's not ongoing belief. So this is not that John came so that the the belief of those that already believe would be strengthened. This is the, the, the moment in time decisive belief that comes with responding to the gospel and who Jesus is. So John came to bear witness about the light that all might believe, that all might make a decision about Jesus. Who is he? What has he done? What are we supposed to do with him? John's witness was intended to bring people to a decision about Jesus the same way that the the gospel of John was intended. Remember John chapter 20 verse 31 is John's purpose, why he wrote the gospel. These things are written so that you might believe, same verb, same tense, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have eternal life in his name. So John the apostle and John the Baptist united together on one purpose. And that's why John the Apostle picks up on what John the Baptist was doing. And he says in verse 9, the true light that John the Baptist was testifying about, now John's picking up the testimony. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is why John was doing what he was doing. John the Baptist, that is. Because the time had come. Jesus had shown up. Jesus was there. In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. The true light was coming into the world. The world. The world is another key term in John's gospel. Believe is a key term. Life, light, key terms. World is also a key term. Cosmos. We get our English word cosmology from it. The study of the universe. It, this word cosmos occurs 90, or not 98 times, 78 times in John. It sometimes refers to sinful humanity, like in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. There, that word cosmos means sinful humanity. He loves sinful humankind so much that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Other times, cosmos means just a large number of of people. When the Pharisees would say that the world has gone after him. That's John chapter 12, verse 19. Hey, what are we going to do about this Jesus character? Because the world, literally everyone has gone after Jesus. A large contingency of people. But then the third thing that it can mean is what it means here, and that is just the, the physical universe. That the, the light was coming into the world, coming into the universe, the world that he had created, and that was one of the most significant events that has ever taken place in human history. John calls him the true light here, the true light. He's distinguishing the light that Christ has from any other light that exists. But he's also hearkening back to some Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They've seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. John's saying that light's here now, and it's Jesus. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. John's going to say the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Here in Isaiah, the light and the glory are connected to the, to the Messiah, the expected one, the Savior. And John's saying he's here. The light, the true light was coming into the world. So John is saying this is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Jesus is the anti-type to the type in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of the Old Testament type. He is the light and the light was coming into 
the world. But I want to back up to John the Baptist here. John the Baptist understood his mission from God. He knew what his purpose in life was, to tell other people about Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says that John lived in the wilderness, off in isolation, apart from anyone else really, until the time came that he was supposed to do what God had set him apart to do. So John the Baptist lived a life of relative obscurity until that moment came where it was time to tell other people because the light had come into the world. John lived for that purpose. When you and I think about our lives, there's a lot of different things that we can live for in this life. There's a lot of things that we can pursue. There's a lot of purposes that we can embrace for ourselves, whether it's career-driven or family-driven or sports or political or economic, whatever it is. There are a lot of different things that we can say, man, this is what's really important to me, and yet there should be one thing that's more important than all of those things, and that is Jesus. Important to us as individuals because he should be important to us as our Lord and Savior, but important to us as we think about our identity, our role, our purpose in this world, which is similar to John's to let other people know about Jesus. John had a platform. John's platform was the Jordan River in the wilderness. And John used that platform to tell as many people as he could about Jesus. He was calling people to repent from their sins and get ready for Jesus was coming. And then when Jesus arrived, he used his platform and anyone within earshot to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew his mission. You and I have a different platform. We haven't been necessarily set apart from the womb the way that John was in that sense. Or even John the Apostle, right? John the Apostle was called by Jesus, and Jesus said, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of of men. Well, Jesus hasn't given us that direct call. But you know what? Jesus has given us a platform. Your platform is different than my platform. Your arena, your sphere of life is different than mine. You live in a different neighborhood. You work in a different place. You go to maybe a different grocery store. You frequent a different coffee shop. All of those things are part of the platform that God has given us to make sure that people know Jesus. And so our first point this morning is this. Use that platform to point people to Jesus. Use your platform, whatever it is, like the Apostle John, like John the Baptist, to to point people to Jesus, to make sure that they know who he is and that they're ready for him. I appreciate an athlete who takes an opportunity and takes advantage of his position to exalt Jesus. And I'm not just talking about the the football player that crosses the end zone and points up at the sky as he crosses the end zone, or the baseball player that hits a home run and taps up to, to, to God as he's crossing home plate. I'm talking about the athlete that really puts himself out there to say, this is what I believe. He's got a unique platform, a platform that reaches far more people than any of us could ever hope to reach. And with that comes more risk, right? Some of you may know the name Blake Trainin. Blake Trainin is a relief pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And right around the time of Pride Month that happened back in June, when the Dodgers announced that they were going to invite this obscene group to their Pride Night, that, and they were going to platform them and, and give them an opportunity to speak, Blake Trainin decided that he needed to speak out. And so Blake Trainin wrote this, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the word of God is true. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Speaking of the group the Dodgers invited, this group openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith. And I want to make it clear that I do not agree with nor support the decision of the Dodgers to honor 
that group that they brought. That's using his platform to point people to Jesus. You don't have a national platform, I get that. But you've got a neighborhood. You've got a group of people that you work with. You've got a dinner table with family members that sit around that dinner, dinner table. And I just want us to think about, are we using our platforms to point people to Jesus? Because God has placed a call on your life. If you are in Christ, God has placed a call on your life to make him known. We call it the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Look, if we are in Christ, if that's, if that's true of us, that Jesus is our Savior, then that's our mission in life. Just like John the Baptist, just like John the, the Apostle, we should have a passion to make sure that people know Jesus. John's life testified to Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about Jesus, to testify about Jesus. Three times in two verses, John the Apostle says that John the Baptist lived to testify about Jesus. What is your life testifying about this morning? You may think, well, I, I just don't have much of a platform. Let me encourage you to think about it a different way. You've got the precise platform that Jesus wants you to have to make him known. And so maybe your platform is the neighborhood park. You know what? That's where God wants you. Those are the relationships that he wants you building. Those are the people that he wants you getting to know. Or maybe your platform is your school. That's exactly where God wants you to be. Those are the people that he wants you to get to know. Those are the relationships that he wants you building so that you can point other people to Jesus. Maybe your platform is your break, break room at work. That's where God wants you to be. You may be tempted to grab your lunch and go sit in your car in the air conditioning and listen to the radio on your lunch break so that you don't have to have conversations with people. But maybe this week you choose instead to go into the break room and to sit down with that person and to just start to get to know them. Towards the goal of being able to point people to Jesus. Or maybe your platform is your dinner table. You may share meals weekly, daily, nightly with people in your family that have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. And your platform is that, to point people to Jesus. John was there to do what he could to make sure that people wouldn't miss Jesus. And he used a river in the wilderness to make that happen. What are we doing? What's your stage? What's your platform? Where has God put you so that you can point other people to follow Jesus? Verse 9, again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Okay, so... Jesus was, was coming. It's called the incarnation. We're going to get there specifically next week. Next week's message, spoiler alert, is called Christmas in August. So come ready for some Christmas cheer next Sunday. But here he's, he's alluding to that. He's saying that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, let's deal with this phrase, which gives light to everyone, because that one might be a little bit head-scratching to us. Well, we're not universalists, okay? That means we don't believe that every, everyone on the face of the planet will be saved no matter what they believe. We believe that only those people that have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation will be saved. So what does John mean when he says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world? Well, allow me to quote from John Calvin, if I can. John Calvin says this on this verse. He says, we know that men have this special quality which raises them above other animals. So he's talking about the difference between humanity and animals. 
that they, men, are endowed with reason and intelligence, and that they bear the distinction between right and wrong engraved on their conscience. We got a new puppy at home recently, and that puppy sometimes does things that he shouldn't do, and he gets punished for that. Well, when he does that, and, and I raise my voice at that animal, he cowers, not because he's got a conscience, but because he knows what happens when he does something wrong. See, he doesn't feel guilty, he feels fear. There's a difference. Humanity, you and I as human beings, have a conscience. We feel guilty. We know the difference between right and wrong, and that's what Calvin is saying here. He says, thus there is no man to whom some awareness of the eternal light does not penetrate. Because our ability to know right from wrong is an example of the law of God being written on our hearts. We only know which is that which is good because of the ultimate good, which is God himself. So here, John is saying that, that the light of Christ has been made known, available to everyone. That's Paul in Romans chapter 1. When he's going on to say what can be known about God is evident because he's made it known in his creation. Or Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a what? A light to my path. Your word, in the beginning was the word. The word is the light, the light to our path. And so that's what John means, in essence, when he says that the true light which gives light to everyone. In other words, Christ is available to anyone and everyone. The ability to, 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 to see that the light is there. So what do we do with it, is the question. And that's where we turn next in John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Pick up with me there. It says, he was in the world, this light, The light was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We just looked at how John was laboring to make sure that no one would miss Jesus. He came preaching the baptism of repentance and the message of repentance, calling people to be ready for Jesus. And then Jesus comes and John's saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go after him. There he is. John's doing everything. He's giving his life, literally would give his life because he would die. He would be arrested and imprisoned and then die. He's giving his life in service of this mission to make Jesus known, trying to make sure as many people would, would know him as possible and yet many would miss Jesus. Many have missed Jesus. Many still are missing Jesus. There's two groups here that John identifies. First, he says he came to the world. This is the 30,000-foot view. This is the world at large. He came to humanity, sinful humanity. Remember, there's three meanings there of the word world. There's physical creation, which it meant last time we saw it. There's the large group of people the world has gone after him. And then there's this one, the world, sinful humanity. He came to the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. They did not know him. In this verse, we find both the amazing and the amazingly tragic. The amazing is that the word of God came to the world that he created, that he entered into creation. I want to preach my legs out under me from next week, but that's amazing for us to think about, that the Lord of the universe entered the universe, that the one who created mankind became, took on flesh to himself. That's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. 
the, the great humility of God, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh and, and becoming a baby, becoming dependent on Mary and Joseph, those who his life he was sustaining. He came and became flesh and learned to walk and learned to talk and felt cold and felt hunger and felt heat, felt betrayal, felt the sting of pain for the first time ever. So when we read he came to the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's mind-blowing. That's the amazing here, and yet the amazingly tragic is that the world did not know him. That which he helped create, that's those whose life he was helping to sustain, did not know him. We read it last week in John 1, 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made by, through Jesus. And yet, that which was made by him did not know him. They did not know him. To know, what, what does that word mean? Well, it means to have firsthand familiarity with someone. To have an acquaintance with someone. To be in, in an intimate relationship with that person. To know them. That's what John wanted everyone to do, is to know Jesus. That's why he was pointing people to Jesus. There's Jesus. Go, you need to know Jesus. You need to have this relationship with Jesus. There he is. Go follow him. And yet here we read that the world did not know Jesus. They didn't have that firsthand familiar, familiar. That's a word that I can't say, apparently. They didn't know him. They didn't have an acquaintance with him. Jesus knows his own, though. John 10, 14. John 10, 14, this word is used here of Jesus. Jesus knows his own and they know him. So there's the distinction. John's talking about those that missed Jesus, that didn't know him. Back in Genesis, the, the chapter that explains creation, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 1, 27, we read this. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Sometimes you'll hear of humanity described as God's image bearers, and it comes from this passage. In other words, we are created to reflect the one who created us. To reflect his image in creation. And here the tragedy is the image bearers did not recognize the one whose image they were created to reflect. He came into the world, the world that was made by him, but the world did not know him. They missed him. We see this everywhere we look today, don't we? Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Romans 1, 20 through 25 describes this, this tragedy of the world that God created, missing him, not knowing him. Paul writes this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, the world, are without excuse. For although they knew God, you say, well, how did they know God? Well, this is what Calvin was talking about. The existence of our conscience, the inherent knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. That which separates us from the rest of creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the indictment. That's the problem. This is what John is talking about. The, the, the one that created all things came into the world and the world did not know him. The world wanted anything but him. They're willing to substitute anything for him. Again, we see this in the world today, don't we? I don't know if you listened to the briefing by Dr. Albert Moeller. It's a podcast that's put out daily by him, Monday through Friday, where he deals with a lot of what's going on in the world and how we should look at it through the, the lens of a Christian worldview. So often in listening to that, we see how the world has chosen to miss Jesus, to reject Jesus, to set Jesus aside and choose other things. Or how about just the news headlines? Open up any news site today, I don't care which one. You're going to see evidence of the fact that the world is not after Jesus, but after everything else but Jesus. Or talk to your neighbors if you want to see someone maybe who doesn't know Jesus. So the world missed him, but the second group he identifies here is his own. His own. John 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so it's escalating here. Okay, the world did not know him, but now he said he's come to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Who were his own people? Well, this is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Paul says in Romans 1.16, salvation was to the Jew first. Meaning Christ came to his own people. And this is what we're reading about in John's gospel as we're going to get into it. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In John chapter 4, Jesus is going to have this conversation with this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And she's going to say, hey, we worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship in Jerusalem at Mount Zion, which is the right one. And Jesus is going to answer in a roundabout way, but he's going to say this before he gets to the crux of the matter there, that it's not about the place, but about how you're worshiping. But he's going to say this, salvation is from the Jews. He said, we were right, basically, is what he's saying there, because salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Messiah came from the Jewish people. We read that in Romans chapter 9 recently in the daily Bible reading. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God forever over all, blessed forever. Amen. So even the Messiah comes from the Jews. And the Messianic expectations at this time were plentiful. The, the people were in their homeland, yes, but Rome was ruling and they wanted Rome out. They had the temple system, but they also had to pay taxes to Caesar. They were ripe for the Messiah to show up. And the Messiah came, and the tragedy is they did not receive him. Those of you who are married here, the, the men, you can think back to, I imagine, waiting for your bride, can't you? I remember it. I remember it well. It took forever. We had a wedding party that was far too large. I didn't, I didn't care about the bridesmaids walking down the aisle. I'm glad they were there, thankful for them. They're great ladies. Even the flower girl and the, the ring bear. They were cute and all, but I, I, get, get to where you're supposed to get, right? And then the door shut in the back of the church, and you just sit there, and you're just waiting. And you're just waiting, and it seems like an eternity, which is probably 15 seconds maybe. 
Why are you waiting? Because you're waiting for the doors to open to see your bride. Because you want to see her. That's why you're there. You're not there for everything else. You're not there for the people that, that are there. You're there because you're waiting for your bride. You want to be with your bride more than anything else. And the doors open and there she is and then everything else disappears and fades into black and it's just her. Y'all, imagine that scene but the bride getting to the front of the, the, the church and the groom going, yeah, she's not the one. I need someone else. Can you imagine being in that church at that moment? One of the attendees, one of the guests, First off, you're thinking, can I return my gift that I bought this, this couple? Because this is not going well. But you'd be shocked. You'd be appalled. You'd mourn. Your heart would break for her, wouldn't it? Because it's not right. This is the one that's for you. This is the one that you've been waiting for. And then she gets there and you're going to have the audacity to say, no, I don't want that one. I want a different one. That's what Israel did to Jesus. The whole Old Testament is them waiting for the double doors at the back of the church to open up and here's the Messiah. And listen, the, the Messiah came, the true light came into the world and John was there going, behold, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one you've been waiting for. He's here. Do you see him? And John saying, they didn't see him. Jesus mourned for this himself in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, 37 through 38, Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Isaiah 1, 3 puts it this way. Isaiah 1, 3, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. They rejected him. We're going to see that throughout our study of the Gospel of John, that the Jews reject Jesus time and time and time and time and time again. What a tragedy we find in these verses. That he came to the world, and the world did not want him. And he came to his own, and his own did not want him. I don't know about you, but I wish I had a button that I could just press and save anyone. Don't you? That would be pretty awesome. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. So what do we have? How can we make sure that nobody misses Jesus the way the world missed Jesus and the Jews rejected Jesus? What power do we have? Well, we can't save anyone, right? It's not in our power, otherwise we would. But we do have the gospel. We do have the gospel. And so if we want to point people to Jesus, like we talked about in point number one, and if we want to make sure that as many people see him and follow him as possible, that no one else is going to miss Jesus, right? I hope that's our heart's burden. I hope that's our, our longing. That when we consider those in our life, we would say, man, I, I want to make sure nobody in my life misses Jesus. If we're saying, okay, yeah, I've got that desire. How do we do that? What does that look like? Point number two this morning is hopefully going to be helpful for us. Make it your goal to get to the gospel. Make it your goal to get to the gospel. If you want to see people saved, we don't have the button to press to say that was easy, and then they're saved. I wish but we don't. What do we have? We have the gospel. We have the good news. And I, I phrase this point this way on purpose, because I don't know about you, but this can be sometimes an intimidating task. 
And part of the reason why it's an intimidating task, not to betray some show that I used to watch when I was growing up that I don't watch anymore, but maybe, maybe you do, and that's okay. You guys know the, the cartoon character Ned Flanders? Some of you guys are nodding along. Some of you guys are, are smiling, but you don't want to betray that you know who Ned Flanders is. Ned Flanders is a character on The Simpsons. And Ned Flanders is the stereotypical Christian in the eyes of the world. He's a goody two-shoes. He never does anything wrong. He's out of touch with reality. And, and Homer, the, the main character in it, does everything possible to avoid Ned Flanders. He doesn't want to be around Ned no matter what. But you know what Ned is missing? Ned is missing the true gospel. And for obvious reasons, but you don't have the writer of The Simpsons having Ned sit down and actually share the gospel with Homer Simpson at any point. That'd be shocking. It'd probably be the last episode of The Simpsons that ever aired. But so often the world looks at us as Christians and looks at us as a bunch of Ned and, and Nadina Flanders, if you will, walking around. And, and we have that perception ourselves and we've embraced that reality. So we begin to project that, whether or not that's the reality. We, we feel like, man, I, I don't want to make anybody feel like I've got wrong motives in befriending them. I don't want them to feel like this is a bait and switch when I sit down and, and tell them about Jesus. That all I've been doing is trying to get to know them in order to tell them about Jesus. And so we slow play the gospel. Or we think, I mean, I, I just, I feel like a hypocrite because I'm trying to tell them that they're a sinner and, and man, maybe they're a better dad than I am. Maybe they're a more moral person in some areas of their life than, than I am. Maybe they've got a stronger marriage than I do. And I'm going to tell them that they're a sinner and they need Jesus? Or maybe we just simply feel like, man, I, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, I want to point them to Jesus. Yeah, I, I want them to know Jesus. But where do I even start? I want to encourage you that you're not alone in those thoughts and those feelings. That I, I know what that feels like too. But I want to suggest some things to you. First, if you're worried about ulterior motives, we, maybe a different way to phrase this is not ulterior motives, but ultimate motives. That, that your ultimate motive is that they would know Jesus. And yes, you are motivated by that more than just having another buddy to watch the Cowboys game with on Sunday. Yes, unabashedly, unashamedly, you're going to say, yeah, look, the, the end goal of my friendship is to see you come to know Jesus. Because if it wasn't, then I wouldn't really love you. Another thing to suggest is that we do often need to build into those relationships before we get to the four spiritual laws. And so that, that is true. We do need to make sure that we're asking ourselves that question, okay, is my relationship with this person strong enough to bear the strain of the confrontation of the gospel? Because listen, the gospel is inherently offensive. We can't make it anything else. It's, a, it's an offensive message to hear you're a sinner and God is perfectly holy and you're alienated and separated from him. That doesn't make anyone feel good to hear the bad news of the gospel. And so there's a sense in which it's appropriate for us to say, man, is my relationship with this person strong enough for me to broach that with them? Now, there are times of urgency where we need to, to share the gospel no matter what. But there is a, a point to say, okay, I'm going to be intentional to continually evaluate this relationship. And when I feel that it's strong enough, man, I'm, I'm going for it with everything I've got. Let me address the hypocrisy side of things. Let me just say welcome to the club. Man, you know what the world says? When the, when the world looks at the church and says the, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites, you know what? They're right. 
Because none of us are perfect. One person put it this way, and I can't remember the person that was the first to, to quote it, but it's this. You know what evangelism is, don't you? It's one beggar telling another, another beggar where to find bread. We're no better. The only difference is Jesus. Man, the, the hypocrisy that rears its ugly head in my life, I want it gone as much as I possibly can. And here's the, the, the good news that I have is it's forgiven because of Jesus. The church is not a place of, of perfect people. If it were, any one of us would, would ruin it as soon as we walked in the building. And I'd be first in line. And so hopefully we can overcome those things. Where do we begin? Where do I start? If that's your holdup, I don't even know how to begin getting the gospel or getting to the gospel. Let me suggest a few things. Hey, invite somebody over for dinner. Be willing to go to someone's house for dinner. Just start there. Build that relationship. Build that friendship. And you don't have to seal the deal night number one. You don't have to, to close the deal and say, okay, so what do you think? Are you ready to follow Jesus? They're like, you just served me lasagna and now you want me to follow Jesus. What's going on here, right? Take your time. Build into the relationship. But start by just saying, hey, we'd love to have you guys over for dinner. What works with your schedule? Second, as you're having dinner with them or, or just engaging with them in the neighborhood, ask questions. Ask questions of them. Don't be afraid to ask your Hindu neighbor about what they believe. Don't be afraid to go over to their house and have them show you around their house and show you some of the things that are part of their worship system. Don't be afraid to ask your coworker who's somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum there, you know, what their life story is. Don't be afraid to listen to their answers. Asking questions and listening to the answers given are not the same things as validating someone's beliefs or lifestyle. But what it might do is show that person that you actually do care about them. And it might open the door for them to then in turn listen to you. And the difference in what their message is and what your message is, is your message has the power of God behind it to transform their life. And so be willing to ask questions. Build those relationships. Second, if you don't know where to begin, pray. Pray for opportunities. And God will bring them. Pray for opportunities. Pray for God to give you clarity about that platform that we talked about back in point number one. Okay, God, show me my platform. Give me the opportunity to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. Pray for open doors with your loved ones, your neighbors, your, your friends, your coworkers to ask those questions that I was just talking about. Pray for a patient spirit to listen to their answers and not feel like you have to jump over the first wrong thing that you hear. Pray for stronger relationships with those that you engage to hold up under the strain of the gospel. Pray for those things. And I trust that God will provide them. Church, I don't want to overburden you. I don't want to overburden you. And, and let me just be transparent with you. It's hard to preach to the middle on this one. Because I don't want us to be a church full of the Ned Flanders. But I also don't want us to be the church full of the, those that have bought into the lie, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. You always have to use words to preach the gospel. No one's going to be saved by you opening the door for them. No one's going to be saved by you inviting them over for dinner. But those might be steps to get to the place where you're able to share the gospel, and that's what's going to save them. So it's hard to preach to the middle on this. You know where you're at on that spectrum. 
And maybe what you need is a little less of the Ned Flanders and a little more towards that, okay, I need to build into these relationships before I get to the gospel. Maybe what you need is a little less of the relational evangelism, which doesn't save anyone, and more of a a push to the middle to say, okay, it's time for me to get to the gospel. Wherever you're at, let the Spirit provoke you and prod you and move you this week in that direction to get to the gospel. Because you know what? This is going to be worth it. Whatever it costs you, this is going to be worth it. If you have to give up, something that, that, that matters to you, your Friday night, your Saturday night, your, your football game, your baseball game, whatever it is, what's going to matter more 50 years from now? The outcome of that game or the outcome of that person's soul? Oh man, I don't have time for point number three. But it's there, we got to get to it, so let's do it. And it's so good, and it's so important. I can't give someone what I don't possess, can I? Maybe you're a Taylor Swift fan out there. And what if I started this sermon out by saying, hey, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you two backstage passes to Taylor Swift. You'd pay more attention to this sermon than you ever had to anything ever, ever. I don't have two backstage passes to Taylor Swift. I would spend my money on a million different things before I would spend my money on backstage passes to Taylor Swift. Just being honest with you, right? I can't give you what I don't possess. So we're talking about the gospel, y'all. As we're talking about pointing people to Jesus, we can't give anyone what we don't first have. And so this third and final point this morning is this. Make sure you haven't missed Jesus. If we're going to point people to Jesus, if we're going to encourage people to follow Jesus, if we're going to make sure we're using our platform that way, we need to make sure that we haven't missed Jesus ourselves. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The world missed him, his own people missed him, but not everyone would miss him. The disciples wouldn't miss him. You know what? The woman at the well, she won't miss him. Spoiler alert, we'll get there. But she won't miss him. Some Samaritans from her village, they won't miss him. The church that blew up after this in Acts, they wouldn't miss him. And hopefully this morning, you haven't missed him. And, but maybe you're here this morning, and to this point, you haven't received him. And I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you, honestly, what's holding you back right now? Why won't you come to Jesus this morning? What's your objection What's the holdup this morning? Is there anything that you can think of, and if it's me, man, then go listen to another pastor that you like as long as you're preaching the word. I'm not offended by that. I pray it's not me. But here's my point here. Come to Jesus this morning. If you haven't received him, if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this morning is the morning to do it. If the objections that you have, if you're thinking about those objections right now and all those objections have been knocked down, then let me encourage you and urge you and plead with you this morning, come to Jesus. You say, how do I do that? A couple things. First, admit that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Admit that you are a sinner, that is, that, that you have done that which is wrong, that you have fallen short of the standard of God, which is absolute moral perfection. And that's every single one of us in this room. Admit that you are a sinner. Second, this morning, repent from those sins. What does that mean? That means turn from those things. It's a resolve in your heart that says, I'm done living for these things. I'm done living for myself, and now I want to turn in faith and live for Jesus. So admit that you are a sinner. Repent from those sins. And third, believe, trust that Jesus died on the cross for the full payment of the sins that you have committed, past, present, and any in the future that you may commit. 
believe that he died on the cross, that the wrath of God against your sins was poured out on Jesus and fully satisfied on Jesus so that you are forgiven of your sins where you sit this morning. And then finally, trust that Jesus rose from the dead so that you too will one day rise again to live with him forever. That's what it looks like to receive Jesus. And if you haven't done it yet, please do it this morning. Please do it this morning. The rest of us are encouraged time and time again in the scriptures to examine ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. And let me encourage you to do that this morning, to make sure that you have not missed Jesus. There is no greater relationship, there is no more important person than him. It wouldn't have taken a person much time around John to find out what he was about, to find out that he loves Jesus and wanted other people to love Jesus. Just like that CrossFit guy or the guy who runs marathons or the guy who sings. You know that guy too, right? I work with one. Oh, you sing. Oh, you're singing again. At least he's got a good voice. He does have a good voice. Church, it's my prayer that we'll be like that too when it comes to Jesus. The people who spend time around us will know that we love Jesus. That's who we need to be as a body. I'm going to pray. Let's do, let's do our closer. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing another song, exalting him, and then we'll be done this morning. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. I pray for the person in this room this morning, and I, and I trust that they're here, that have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. I, I pray that they would do some honest business with you this morning to ask about, okay, why What's the reason why I haven't yet fully trusted and surrendered to him? God, I pray that they would find when they search their hearts that really there's nothing left holding them back except them, their own will, their own decision to trust. And I pray that this morning that they would make that decision. I pray that today they would make that decision that they would move from being alienated from you to being reconciled and brought near to you through Jesus and faith in him. God, for the rest of us that have made that decision, I pray that we would see our lives as an opportunity and a platform to point as many people as possible to our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we love and adore and we want to sing and praise right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.